Turn to John chapter 7. We're going to be looking really verses 6 through 13 this morning. I've, I've entitled the message a stealthy entrance. The reason for that is if you remember that the last week, Jesus's brothers, Jesus had half brothers. We know a couple of their names, right? Jude and James. They end up writing epistles later. They had this marvelous strategy idea for Jesus. They said, look, we know you lost all your, we know you lost a ton of disciples following the bread of life discourse in John chapter six. We think that if you just go down during the Feast of Tabernacles, when the nation is just uh, excited nationalistically, they're excited religiously. Remember, nationalistically, they God is one day going to reign over this world. He's going to send his Messiah. We're going to have peace in Jerusalem. And it was a harvest festival. We could take these crops that they had just been growing and say, wow, look how God cares for us. Look how God provides for us. So it was like, uh, as some of the Jewish historians said, it was one of the most popular feasts in all of Israel, if not the most popular feast. So their strategy was like, Jesus, you've been doing all these things up by the Sea of Galilee, not as many people up here. Go down to the feast and really make some noise. Like, get some people, get where there's a population issue, start doing what you're doing, then everyone will agree. And why would you want to hide that? And this was kind of their their strategy. It's interesting because man's philosophy is go big or go home right? We, we see that like that's, that's in all the, the playoff talks and that's all in the sports top. Go big or go home. God's philosophy is not that way. In fact, that was, that was his brothers. You know what? Either go big or basically shut up and stop doing what you're doing. Either go big or go home. God's philosophy is much simpler. Go big and bring it home. <laughs> it's kind of what he's going to do. And so Jesus is going to, to go into this feast. He's just not going to go on the timetable that his brothers want him to go. He's actually walking in dependence on the Father. And so we're going to see that this morning. Jesus is going to try to explain a little bit, give them an insight as to why he's not going big or going home. He's not adopting that philosophy. And what he's going to say in verse 6 through 7 is really the timing's not right. And this is how he words it. Then Jesus said to them, my time has not yet come, but your time is always ready. The world cannot hate you, but it hates me because I testify of it that its works uh, are evil. Now, he explains why he's not going up to the feast with them. Now, it's interesting. Uh, you'll notice, and in fact, if, you're, if you carefully notice in verse 6, he says, my time has not yet come. Most of the time, he says what? My hour has not come. So he shifts there. Now, now some people would just say, well, John, he's just using a different word. He means basically the same thing. But potentially, he's talking about something different here when he uses the word time. Because when he talked about hour, he's talking about the specific hour of his death. That's typically what he's talking about. So he's, I don't think he's talking about the specific hour of his death, but he's talking about a time frame, a season. That's what this word can mean, a season or a time period, a time frame. So what is he talking about? Well, I think he's speaking simply of his time to present himself as Messiah in full display. In fact, that time frame, that time period will come about six months from where we're at in John chapter 7. Jesus, in terms of time frame, he's about two and a half years into his earthly ministry, Six months from now, his time is going to arrive. And it's going to coincide with his triumphal entry into Jerusalem on Palm Sunday. He's going to publicly present himself as the nation's Messiah. Then his hour is going to follow that time frame, what, on Friday, okay? So this is, this is what he's saying. My time is not yet. They say, you need to present yourself as a Messiah. Now he's like, no, my time is not yet come. He would present himself publicly and to the entire nation 
just not at this feast. He's not going to present himself publicly at the Feast of Tabernacles here. But guess what? This is a fall feast. Guess what's going to happen six months from now in the spring feast known as Passover? He is going to present himself. And it's interesting because God knows what he's doing. God knows how to reveal things on his time frame. He's got a timetable. He, pre- he predicted the death of the Messiah all the way back in Daniel chapter 9 in terms of the time frame. So he had a time frame he was working on. He had a, he had a way that he wanted to, t- to tie it to the Passover feast because what was the Passover feast? Simply put, Israelites in Egypt needed deliverance from Egypt. God had sent nine plagues. He sends the 10th one, which was the Passover lamb, the Passover angel passing over, causing death in every household where a lamb had not been slaughtered with the blood painted on the doorpost. And that's why they use the word Passover, because if blood was painted on the, the doorpost, then the angel of death would pass over that house. Why? Because death had already fallen at that house in the form of the substitute, the lamb. And so no more judgment could fall in that house because judgment had already fallen on that house in the substitute of the lamb. And you can see why the lamb of God typifies that feast completely. Because the Bible says, if you put your faith in Jesus Christ, his death counts in your place and the judgment of God can pass over you as well. And this is why I can make these incredible promises that you'll never perish if you believe in Jesus and that you have eternal life, which by the way, those two go together. If you have eternal life, you can never perish. That's just by definition, eternal life. And if you can never perish, guess what that means? You live forever because you never have to face that death penalty. And so he will present himself publicly at the appropriate time, at the appropriate feast, which was typifying what he was going to do. And this is why Paul says later in Corinthians, Christ is our Passover lamb. It's all beautiful. God knows how to paint. He knows how to paint with color. He doesn't need connect the dots or paint with color manuals. He's got it all figured out right? And so he knows how to do this. He, he's done this in this case. So Jesus says, this isn't the time. My time frame to present myself as a Messiah is not here. But in contrast to Jesus, his brother's time is described here as always ready. And so what is he referring to here? Well, I think he's referring to him basically this idea that right now y'all can go to the feast anytime you want. You can go to Jerusalem anytime you want. You can go back and forth if you want to. You can even get up on a on a box and scream and, and they'll just think you're crazy. Nothing's going to happen to you. You've you got this freedom to go because your time is always ready. Nothing was hindering their movement. And Jesus is going to go on to explain to them, see, that's not an issue for you, but it's an issue for me because I'm on mission. I'm the representative of God, the father. I've got something that I need to accomplish for not only the nation, but for the rest of the world. You can go up anytime you want. I've got to be dependent on time frame. I've got to be dependent on when I'm going to push and when I'm going to pull back. And we're going to see that as we go through. In fact, this trip to Jerusalem, starting in John chapter seven, coming down for the Feast of Tabernacles, this trip is covered in John chapter seven, John chapter eight, John chapter nine, and a good portion of John chapter 10, this this whole trip. And we're going to see Jesus kind of lean in and pull back. He's going to come in quietly and then he's going to make some noise and then he's going to pull back. And we're going to see that throughout this trip to Jerusalem because he's walking in dependence on the father here. And what he tells his, his uh, brothers is the world cannot hate you. It's unable to have active ill will against you. That's what the word evil means. The reason for that, because at this point, they were just joining in the world, not in a bad way. They're just part of the world system they're involved. They're part of the culture. 
They're part of the Jewish culture. They were literally floating along with the natural current of the day. And so they, they wouldn't be criticized for that. They wouldn't be hated for that. They're going to the feast just like millions of Jews were going to the feast. They're living life just like millions of Jews were living their life. They're fishing on the Sea of Galilee just like hundreds or thousands of other Jews were making their living off to the Sea of Galilee. They were just going with the flow. The calling on their life was not the same as Jesus's life. And anyone that does this, you can't be hated at all because you're playing by the by the rules of the culture. You're playing ball with the culture. And you just kind of you just kind of navigate along. And I know there's an application in there for each one of us in our culture. I mean, that's the thing. If you want to just float along with the culture, stay under the radar, not be judged, not be criticized, not be whatever, you can accomplish that as a believer in Jesus Christ. You really can. You can just float. You can be just like your neighbor. You can talk more about the Georgia Bulldogs than Jesus Christ. You know, you can talk more about, well, I don't know, Alabama. I mean, whoever, you know, whoever you want to throw in there. The Dallas Cowboys, let me just nail myself right. So you can talk about anybody. You can, you can, you can just fit, fly right into the culture. And this is, this is what he's telling his brothers. And I don't think this is a critical comment. He's just saying, look, look guys, you're just, you're just like all the millions of Jews in the world. There's, you can go in and out anytime you want. The world doesn't hate you. You're just kind of floating with the culture. However, in contrast, he, what he's trying to point out to them is something is different about me. Guys, you, this is what you don't understand as my brothers. You don't understand that something is different about me. Something is different about my mission. Something's different about my calling. And this is what he's pointing out here. And he's saying this, says it this way, but it hates me because I testify of it that its works are evil. And so you've got this world system, the Jewish culture of the day, especially the religious leaders of Judaism who are at this very moment, this is what's brought out by the verb tense, right now, Jesus is telling his brother, they're saying, well, why don't you just go up and declare yourself? Jesus is explaining why it's not. He's saying right now, at this very moment, there is a group of people who have active ill words or active ill will towards me in both word and conduct. And I don't know if his brothers knew that. You know, they were, sometimes we think of Israel, it's kind of like, it's, it's kind of like my parents used to work at the Pentagon, Right. And, and, and they worked there for seven, eight, well, I think my mom, anyways, I, forget the details. They worked at the Pentagon. I think there was, she was somewhere else for a little bit during that time. They worked at the Pentagon and we would, we would meet people, uh, just like on our baseball team or whatever. And they'll say, Oh, I know someone in the Pentagon. Do you know so and so? And it's like, do you know how big the Pentagon is? It's like, no, we don't. People do that all the time. If you work at Chick-fil-A. Oh, I know someone that works at Chick-fil-A. Do you know so? Don't they? I mean, we do this all the time, right? And so sometimes we come to Israel and we think, oh, well, Jesus' brothers are in Israel, so they know everything that's going on down in Judea. We're going to show a map later. They're up by the Sea of Galilee. They're kind of in the country. They're country bumpkins. And Jesus is explaining for them, guys, you don't understand what's going on in Judea. You don't understand the, the, the Sanhedrin, the Jewish religious leaders. They know about me and they don't like me. And, and he's trying to explain this to his brothers. This is why I can't go up with you and just haul off and declare. Now, there'll be a point, a point where I go into the city and I haul off and declare, but it's not this feast. And he's trying to explain to them what's going on. Now, why did they not like him? Well, he says it right there. It gives us the reason. Because I testify of it that its works are evil. Again, John goes to this legal terminology, this judicial terminology about a testimony from a witness. It means to bear witness or to testify of the truth of what one has seen. And in this case, what he's testifying or pointing out is that the world's works are evil, okay? Meaning evil in a moral or spiritual sense, 
wicked, malicious, and mischievous. Now, when we hear that, when we see that phrase, Jesus testifies that its works are evil, what do most of us automatically think of? We think of just grossly licentious sins. We, we think about the things that all of us complain about uh, at dinner with friends and at McDonald's, how this, this country's going to somewhere south in a handbasket, right? And we, and we kind of focused on all the, the negative, evil, wicked, licentious things that are going on. By the way, is that true of the world? It is true of the world, okay? So it's not that he's not necessarily talking about that here. He's not talking, I, I don't believe primarily about the dirty dozen sins that we often think about here. Because who were the ones that were most opposed to Jesus at this stage of his life? It was the Pharisees. It was the religious people. It was the religious sinners. And so I believe he's also condemning religious works. And what do religious works ultimately say? God, I reject your solution. I'll stick with mine. That's what religion does. God, I'll take, uh, yeah, you can help me a little bit on 50%, but I'm taking care of the other 50%. God, I got this figured out. It's like a guy I talked to one time. I said, how, you know, do you know if you're going to heaven and hell? He says, you don't worry about me, sonny boy. Me and Jesus got this thing worked out. What does that even mean? I don't, like, wow. So, but people think that way. Now, then that becomes a question. Are religious works good or bad? Well, it depends on what perspective you're looking at them from. If you want to come, like I've said a million times in this church, if you want to come mow my lawn, bring me casseroles for dinner, I will take, I'll take it. All right. That's good for me. I like food probably too much. I like laying down and resting probably too much. So if you want to do that, it's good for me. Is it good to the Lord? I don't know. And that all depends on motive and source. You know what's so fascinating is he calls, I believe in this case, not only licentious works of the world evil, but I think he calls religious works of the world evil as well. And let me give you an example. And the reason I believe that is because they're coming from an evil an unacceptable source, even though they appear religious. And let me show you what I'm talking about. Matthew 7 is a passage that's often quoted out of context. In fact, let me just read the first sentence. I don't want to make a comment. It says, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, shall enter the kingdom of heaven. And most people, when they quote this for a lot of people, not most, when a lot of people quote this first, they say, you can't just say, Lord, Lord, and then live any way you want to and go to heaven. You'll hear it quoted that way a lot of times. It's like a cross-reference verse to say, you can't just say you're saved and then live any way you want to. By the way, as you're going to see, this passage is so foreign to that kind of thinking. It's, it's almost embarrassing when you read it through for that, for that view to hold. And I'll tell you why. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, shall enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father in heaven. We learn that the will of the Father in John is what? To believe on the one whom he sent. That's the will of the Father. It's not talking about all these active works. How do I know that? Because we're about to read of a group that did a bunch of active works and they're not getting in. That's the whole point. Many will say to me in that day, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied? How? In your name. Cast out demons? How? in your name, and done many wonders, how? In your name. And then Jesus will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice religious good deeds or wickedness, lawlessness. What's he talking about? He's talking about their religious works here. And the reason 
They're lawless is what I said earlier. Religion thumbs their nose at God and says, I got it taken care of God. You're wrong about the perilous situation I'm in. I can get there on my own. Religion just completely spits on the finished work of Jesus Christ and says, oh yeah, I like Jesus, but you know, I got to do a little bit more. How offensive to the man who died for us and rose again. How offensive to the one who took the beating that you and I deserved. How offensive for the one who closed his mouth when he could have got out of it, called angels from heaven, deliver it, and he took it for you and me. How offensive to think that we could contribute anything to that when he yelled from the cross, it is finished, paid in full. And see, this is what religion misses. They said, oh, if you just do a good, enough good works, you're gonna just be acceptable to God. God views your good works as filthy rags, we learn in Isaiah 64, 6. Menstrual rags, literally in the Hebrew. And lawlessness or evil, as Jesus is pointing out here. What was the religious leader's problem here? They were wicked because they weren't, they weren't believing in God's representative. They weren't trusting in God's solution for sin. That's why they were evil works. And so what we're going to see here, too, is what's crazy. And, and this is, we're going to see this bear out in the book of John. You already know the story. But isn't it ironic that religious fervor often leads to murderous violence? That's why I say the most dangerous person in the world is a religious person with a Bible in one hand and a knife in the other. And that, and that just describes religion worldwide so much. Because the second you start challenging their power structure, the second you start defacing them or causing them to lose faith because you're actually quoting truth, which they don't know because they've gotten to a power structure and they love power and they love prestige. Just as Jesus called out the Pharisees, they love going around town and be, oh, hey, rabbi, rabbi. And they're like, yeah, what do you, yeah, what do you need? You know, they love being called out. They love that prestige. And this is what's crazy is those very people who are fighting allegedly over a higher righteous standard will lower themselves to the depths of grime of sin that no one could ever expect or believe they were capable of. We're going to see that in the story of Jesus. These Pharisees that wouldn't even, they were tithing on, on herbs. Like, you know, like the stuff you grow and you drink. They were taking a tenth of that and giving it to the temple. They were paying everything they needed. They were following the law meticulously. And yet when it came to Jesus, they're like, I'm feeling pretty good about violating one of the Ten Commandments. I think we should kill this guy. And they're like, yeah, great idea. I think we're justified in doing that. They lower themselves under the standard of righteousness and then justify it. This is what's crazy about religion. And so he's, he's testifying that these people are evil. In fact, he's going to say again, as we get into his speech um, next week, that he knows that there are some among them that want to kill him. And they're going to act like, oh, you're crazy. You belong in a, you just belong in a Satan. No one's trying to kill you. What are you, what are you talking about? But Jesus knew. He knows what happens when you mix religious fervor with error. It ends up oftentimes in murder, and he knows that. And so their works in this case, I believe, was ultimately rejecting the one whom God the Father has sent. It, despite of all these infallible proofs, despite of all these things that have been prophesied that he would do, that he was doing, they just rejected him. This is the works that he was testifying against. Because this hatred's going on, because it's even ramping up at the present time, Jesus tells his brother, I'm not going to go up to the feast with you. My time's not there. My time of presentation is not there. So as we kind of move on into verse, uh, verses 8 through 9, we'll see that Jesus is 
going to stay back for a time. He is going to end up at the feast. He's just not going to go the way that his brothers want him to go. Let's look at uh, verse 8. He says, you go up to this feast. I am not yet going up to this feast, for my time is not yet fully come. And so when he said these things to them, he remained in Galilee. Jesus simply encourages his brother, just go ahead without me. Just go on up without me. And he says, I'm not yet going up. Now, some of your Bible versions, again, it's kind of a textual variant here. You, you might see it in your Bible version. If not, some versions will say, I'm not going up or I am not yet going up. I think, uh, I know the New King James has yet in there. I think there's, anyways, I, I forgot to look at all of them, but some of them just have, I'm not going up or I'm not yet going up. That word yet, there's a textual variant there. Either way, He's simply stating, I'm not going up with you. <laughs> That's all he's saying. It's, I don't, obviously, he's not saying, I'm not going up. Because then we have a problem in verse 10 when he does go up, right? It would, it would mean that Jesus lied or that he deceived them. Based on what we know about Jesus, he never sinned. That's not even a, a consideration. And so the idea is, I'm not going up with you right then. I'm not going up with you as my brothers. I'm going to go up differently. He just doesn't explain that to them in this time. He just says, I'm not going up to this feast. You go up. My time is not yet fully come. This time that he's not going up is it has to do with this presentation, I believe, as the Messiah to the nation. It wasn't ready. That's still six months off. It's going to be associated with the feast of Passover. So it wasn't just right on God's timetable. And he describes it this way, that my time is not fully come. It means this word means to make full or to fill a vessel or hollow, hollow place. And it just, it just says his presentation is not quite there yet. Great picture is filling up a pitcher. This is the, the word, filling it up. So you got a pitcher, you're filling it up with water. He says, it's not quite full yet. It's not quite ready to be poured out yet. It's, it's filling, it's getting closer, right? It's filling up, but we're not quite uh, ready for pouring it out yet. It's kind of the image that he gives us. And also we're gonna see that he does end up going to the feast, but he's gonna go incognito. You know, not with glasses and the fake mustache, but I think he's gonna go you know, at an off hour, maybe on a back road. We don't, the text doesn't really tell us, but he ends up getting to the feast and no one even knows he's there for until halfway through the feast. They, they, they're not even sure where, where he's at. So obviously had he gone with his brothers, they, they actually may have incited a, a riot. They may have gathered a crowd. They may have been trying to help him, right? Present himself as a Messiah and he couldn't afford for that to happen. So he stays back. He's going to end up going up later. And so this is why he says his brothers left without him, probably honestly not expecting to see him at the feast just days from now. They probably thought he wasn't coming. They didn't know. And so his brother, his brothers go to the feast. And here's the thing that's interesting. His brothers are like, just go in publicly. People need to know who you are. What the brothers are going to find out, I think, is they get to Jerusalem. If, if they're privy to some of the conversations we're about to look at, Jesus is the talk of the town. Everyone's talking about Jesus. Everyone's looking for Jesus. I don't know if his brothers realized that. Again, I kind of brought this out um, earlier, but I don't know if they understood exactly what Jesus told him in verses six through eight, where he's trying to point out to them, there's tension in Jerusalem. There's some hostility there waiting for me. I don't know if you guys understand that. And again, as I pointed out earlier, they're, they're up in this region of Israel. They're up in the Galilean region. Their life is fairly sustainable right there around the Sea of Galilee. Everything they need is right there. And you can see that going down to Jerusalem is coming all the way down here. You know, it's a few day, uh, it's a few day hike. They really wouldn't have any reason to go down there other than for 
the feast. And so they've been kind of removed from Judea for a while. They don't probably understand the, the stir that Jesus's ministry has caused. They're about to find out because if they just talk to even remotely one person on the road, they're probably going to see, oh, and our big brother is kind of a big deal here. And, and they don't think they realized it until they got there. We see uh, in, here going forward in verse 10, we see that Jesus enters Jerusalem really via stealth. It says, when his brothers had gone up, then he also went up to the feast, not openly, but as it were, in secret. And I think I mentioned this earlier, but this trip to Jerusalem that Jesus takes, it's recorded in John 7, 8, 9, and part of chapter 10. This, this So John, it's, it's funny because he fast forwards. He'll remember uh, back, I think it was at the end of chapter 4 and, and 5, 1, it's, he like fast forward like 18 months in the life of Jesus. We just, it's just like, zzz, he just zips forward here. And part of the reason again is what's his purpose? Well, he's Recording seven hand-selected signs. Why? To convince you and I of his identity. Why? So that we'll trust in him to give us eternal life. That's it. That's why John wrote his book. So again, he's not trying to record a, a chronological teaching. But I think what he is doing is, is in this section, and I think the reason he slows down, we're six months away from Jesus's crucifixion. And I think John wants people to understand how this, this rhetoric started to ramp up, how this hostility started to ramp up, and how we finally get to where we at, we're, we're at during Passion Week and why the level of hatred and murderous intent had risen to the level where they actually executed their intentions. I think he's painting that picture. He's going to show us because there's a lot of interaction here. There's a lot of things that Jesus does where, again, he puts himself out there and just infuriates the religious leaders. They've already got in their mind they want to kill him. Well, he's about, he's about to throw some additional logs on the fire, if you want to say that, during this trip to Jerusalem. And so notice the time markers here. When his brothers had gone up, then he also went up to the feast. And it just seems clear that Jesus had no intention of going to the feast with his brothers. Again, they were going to be trying to make a big deal of him, probably, quote unquote, help him. Their game plan for the trip was... Definitely a human reliance strategy. Go to the most populated area and then just tell everybody. In fact, they probably would have agreed with Satan's strategy in Matthew 4, right? Yeah, just cast yourself from the temple. Let the angels catch you. Everyone will believe. This is where worldly strategy comes from. Jesus is like, I'm not buying into that. I'm not buying into the worldly campaign strategy. In fact, I think they wanted to help him. And I think they were probably wanting to help him get back some of the disciples he lost in chapter 6. Because where did that happen? up near the Sea of Galilee in their backyard. They had probably heard, oh, my brother's here. Everyone's following this. Cool, my brother's becoming famous. You know, if if you've ever known someone that became famous, you're like, oh, that's kind of cool. I know him, you know, I know her. Well, Jesus is kind of becoming famous. Well, then they hear half the crowd left or a large group of people left them. They're like, oh no, this is terrible. We got to help him get those guys back. And this was kind of their their strategy, if if you recall. This was clearly not in the will of the Father. And so Jesus rightly delayed his attendance. And Jesus did this throughout his life. He wasn't interested in what the crowd thought. He was interested in what the father thought. Insert your application there. I mean, this is how we are designed to live our life. How many times, even as a 40, almost seven-year-old man, do I feel influenced and pressured by peer pressure? I don't know if you guys do. Maybe I'm just a weakling, you know, wimp. (laughs) No, oh my, no one's helping me here. Okay. I am. I am a weakling and a wimp. If you agree with that or not, or you, you don't have the problems and I do, that's totally fine because I do have that problem. 
And I think one of the things that Jesus never succumbed to was this, the, the, the threat of popular opinion, the threat of how he would be viewed. Because in, in the grand scheme of things, and I don't want to, I don't want to be too crass with this, but he didn't give a rip what anyone else thought except his father. And that needs to be the mindset that we carry in life. And sometimes we make decisions, even as adults, to please our parents. We make decisions, even as adults, to please our friends. We make decisions in this church to please other people in the church. And let me just say this. We're not hung up on on a lot of things that people get hung up on. At least we try not to. If you want to send your kid to public school, then do it as unto the Lord. If you want to homeschool your kids, do it as unto the Lord. You want to send them to private school, do it as unto the Lord. We're more interested in the decision you make and why you're making it, not to please someone that's sitting next to you or please the family members that are in your family that would say, well, you're an idiot if you send them to public school or you're an idiot, you're crazy if you homeschool them. Again, audience of one. That's where we always go back to. Why am I doing what I'm doing? If I'm doing it as unto the Lord, then I'm okay. And that's what we're talking about. And especially in these areas that it's just gray. It's not clearly spelled out in the scripture. There's a lot of freedom to move within there. But sometimes we get so bent with peer pressure that we can't even think straight. We're so clear on what peer pressure is telling us. We don't even know what the will of God might be because we never even talked about it, prayed about it, thought about it, considered it. It's insane the way we do that. Jesus, though, he did that always. And praise God. He sets a great example for us to live life independence on the Father, looking only to him. Everyone else can think I'm a fool. That will hurt. (laughs) It hurts, right, when people think you're dumb and an idiot and dumb and stupid and (laughs) making the wrong decision. It kind of hurts. That's why we struggle with those decisions. But you know what? As long as I'm doing it as unto the Lord, I I can look up and see the Lord applauding, right? If, imagine if you were giving a performance and nobody showed up, but the Lord showed up. And at the end of the performance, he got up and said, well done, well done. I'd take that. I'd take that every Sunday morning, actually. That'd be awesome. Rightly delays his attendance. Now, this is an interesting phrase. He, he goes up, not openly, but as it were, in secret. Okay, and this, this quiet arrival, especially in this feast, was more in line with the Father's plan at this time. We're gonna see it's not so quiet in six months. Not openly means not apparent, not manifest, not plainly. It's not publicly. He didn't go up publicly trying to garner attention. We see that next phrase, as it were in secret, he was hidden, he was concealed, uh, so to speak. What's interesting here is the play on words because in verse four, his brother says, no one does anything in secret. And then Jesus does it in secret. He, he reverses their advice completely. And John kind of brings that out using the same word. I think it's a little play on words. So where did Jesus go? Maybe he took a back road. Maybe he waited to enter the city when the crowds had died down, off hour time. Either way, his entrance into the city was understated. In fact, we're going to see it when we get to verse 11. They don't even know where he is. They don't even know if he's there. So it was understated enough that nobody knew if he was even at the feast yet. So he comes in secretly. He comes in quietly. But then when we get to verse 11, we see the tension, okay? Jesus was right. What he was telling his brothers was right. They just didn't know it yet. Jesus understood it. And this is what we see borne out in these verses. In verse 11, we see that the Jews, then the Jews sought him at the feast and said, where is he? Now, I'll point this out as we go along, but I want to point it out in verses 11 through 13. A lot of Greek imperfect tenses are used in in verses 11 through 13. 
Imperfect tense in the Greek reflects a continual or ongoing action in the past. So from the perspective of the writer, John, as he's looking back in the past, he was basically telling us they were doing these things continually. They kept on doing these things, is might be how you say. And the first one we're going to see here is that they sought him. Again, when when John uses the word Jews, you've got to go to the context and try to determine who he's talking about. But here it's pretty clear that he's referring to the Jewish religious leaders, okay? The elite, the Pharisees, the chief priests, and the scribes. And it says that they sought him, imperfect tense, which we'll bring out here in a second and why that's significant. The word sought means to seek after, to look for, to strive to find. If this was you and I looking for something that a, one of our children had dropped in an open field, we'd, we'd be down on our knees, like picking up rocks, looking, right? Getting down, looking for the back. I remember uh, even just this year, one of the, the girls that played volleyball lost the back of her earring on a court and we were all on the ground just looking for it, you know, and it's really small and hard. This is kind of what that word would reflect. There's some intensity to it. You know, it's, it's not like the typical thing in my house where I go to the refrigerator and I'm like, Carrie, where's the butter at? I thought we bought some butter. She's like, did you move, you know, the ketchup? And oh no, move the ketchup. It's right there. Oh my goodness. It appeared miraculously. So it's not just some dude looking in the refrigerator. That's not what this word means. It's actually exploring. It's looking. It's vigorously seeking after him. And as I said, it's an imperfect tense. So it's, it, they were continually striving to find him. They, like this was their primary focus, which is crazy because what was actually going on at the feast? It was an opportunity to worship and glorify Yahweh. And their focus is all on finding Jesus. They're, it's all on investigating. And so you can see they're very distracted. In fact, they go on. They, they, not only are they looking, but then they're saying to the crowd, where is he? Again, imperfect tense. They kept on asking others where he was. So they're personally looking for him. They're asking others if they've seen him. They're, they're in full-on detective mode, looking for Jesus Christ. They're doing this investigative work. Why are they doing it? Jesus is going to point out because they're looking for an opportunity to kill him. That's what they're doing. And if they could catch him on a back road somewhere, oh, he's staying over here. Ooh, is anyone seeing? Maybe we can take him out right here. They're looking for an opportunity to kill him. That's the strategy behind it. This is why there's some intensity here. Now, the people we're going to see, they understand that the Jewish leaders are on, a, on edge. You know, have you ever had someone ask you a question and you're like, why? Why are they so intense about that? Like, it just kind of strikes you as odd. Like, it doesn't match the, <laughs> doesn't match the scenario that you're in and their intensity levels like up to like DEFCON 4. And you're like, why, what, what's the matter here? Well, the Jewish people pick up on this. This is exactly what they're going to pick on. In fact, uh, if you look at verse 13, notice what they say. No one spoke openly of Jesus for fear of the Jews. They knew something was going on. The, the tension was thick, right? They could feel the hostility in the air, probably even the way that they discussed. And so the people feel tension. Now, now the leaders are looking for Jesus. So then what are the people going to start doing? They're going to start talking about Jesus. They're also going to be focused on why are they so focused on what, who is this guy? What's he all about? And this is, you'll see is that they kind of start talking about him too. And so the entire feast of tabernacles now shifts away from Yahweh and their thinking to, to some false prophet, Jesus. But what they don't understand is the focus is still on Yahweh, God, the son. <laughs> it just shifted from where they thought it should have been. God, the father onto God, the son. And so they're all looking for him and they engage in this 
kind of this big debate here uh, as we look at verse 12. And so in verse 12, we read this, and there was much complaining among the people concerning him. Some said, he is good. Others said, no, on the contrary, he deceives the people. And so when we look at this, this word, much complaining, it means to grumble, to murmur, or to mutter in general. Now, you've got to look at the context to determine, is it, are they griping about something bad or maybe just talking in hushed tones about something good? It, it kind of just depends on context. Uh, overall, we're going to see two, two things that they're doing. One is probably griping. The other one is probably just talking in hushed tones, a little bit quieter. Why? Because of what we looked at at verse 13. If they're talking too loud about it, the Jewish religious leaders aren't going to like it. So they're, they're all trying to stay under the radar here. The crowd's picked it up enough. We're not going to be talking about this too loud or too openly, regardless of what position we hold. And so this is why uh, one of the things, and by the way, it's imperfect tense used here again. This was an ongoing action done by the people. And so you can see Jesus is the talk of the town. Again, if his brothers are involved in any of these conversations, they're going to be like, wow, I had no idea my big brother was so popular down here, right? But they're also starting to read that there's some hostility going on. They're sensing that tension. In fact, someone's talking. You ever, you ever like, you know, I walked into somewhere and you start talking to someone and they're like, hey, how's it going? They're like whispering. Like, Why are you whispering? And then you figure out you just stepped into a situation where something had been going on before you got there. And, um, I had a story come to mind, but I won't share it. Sorry, it's, it's, it's too personal. It's not my story, so I'll let that one go. But y'all know what I'm talking about. You've been in those situations, right? And, and where you come in. So this is probably what his brothers came into. A lot of talking going on about it. Oh, hey, hey what are we talking about? Oh, we're talking about your brother. What? <laughs> They're like, what are you talking about? And so they understand there's something going on. So this was supposed to be, uh, again, a holy time of worship of Yahweh, not time to converse about someone whom the religious leaders considered a false teacher or false prophet. And this is why I think they were so like palpably disgusted with the name of Jesus. They were so palpably just like, oh, I just want to get rid of this guy. I just want to get this guy out of here. He's so distracting. And so this big debate amongst the crowd started and first group said, oh, Jesus. Oh yeah, he's good, man. He's a good guy. Good means he's benevolent, profitable, useful. In fact, some of this group may not have been convinced that Jesus was a Messiah. They're like, yeah, he's good. Overall, he's a good guy. He's a good dude. I, I mean, I think, think he's doing some good things. I think he's kind of harmless, you know. His overall presence, his overall ministry, good thing. One out of ten, seven, eight, he's good, right? This is kind of the mindset. And it just shows, it's really interesting. It just shows that they had a positive volition to Jesus. But just having a positive volition to Jesus it's not enough to go to heaven. You know that, right? There's millions or billions, maybe, maybe even in the billions of people in the world that you said, hey, what do you think about Jesus? Good man, good teacher, good prophet, positive volition to Jesus. They probably actually appreciate a lot of the stories about Jesus. In fact, I have known people that didn't believe in Jesus, but they love, they get teary-eyed over some of the stories about Jesus in the gospels and what he did. Positive volition to Jesus. And this is the danger of religion without personal faith. This positive volition without personally trusting in him. This positive volition without actually listening to what he says. You know, oftentimes uh, believers get accused of being exclusive. You think your way is the only way. You think you're right. You think everyone else is wrong. And it's like, we didn't come up with that idea. The very man that you're talking about, that you have positive volition 
toward Jesus Christ is the very one who said that. We're just quoting him. He's the one who made it exclusive because he's the one who understood the problem well enough to understand there is only one solution and it's what he accomplished for us on the cross. So it's very important to see that they thought he was good. That kind of sounds like a good thing in many ways. And no doubt, someone they knew personally or someone they knew of had benefited in some way from Jesus's healing ministry. They may have even, this group may have even seen Jesus do a miracle or, or knew somebody that had seen him do a miracle. So they're like, I think he's good. I think he's a good guy. And you could say maybe they're closer to the truth than this other group, but I don't even know. <laughs> Sometimes religious people are farther away from trusting in Christ from the gospel than the most sinful wretch you can find lying in a gutter somewhere because they actually think they're good. And they actually think they're not bad enough to go to hell. They would never deserve hell. And so they, they almost need a paradigm shift in the way that they're thinking, even though they think positively about Jesus. Clearly, though, their conviction as to his identity wasn't strong enough. They, didn't, they weren't going to take on the religious leaders over it. We're going to see they stay below the radar. Verse 13, they're not, they're not going to say it too loud. They, they've got a little bit of a fear of the Jews. And this is why they're murmuring or, or talking in hushed tones. The other group, on the contrary... I think they're trying to take the side of the religious leaders. They saw some danger in Jesus. You know, this was the, this was the, uh, you know, the devil's advocate side, so to speak. The people that always, you know, you know, those people too. They're always going to take the negative view. If you say yellow, they're going to say, well, if you say black, they're going to say white. Yellow didn't have really a contrast there. If you, whatever you say, they're going to say the opposite, right? And this group, uh, in some ways, they might have just been playing the, the contrarian. They might have actually believed that Jesus is deceiving the people. He's causing people to wander. He's leading people astray. And maybe they had such loyalty to the Jewish religious leaders. They thought, man, this, they hate this guy. Thus, I hate this guy. And that might have been the depth of their thinking on this. We don't really know. But they were saying basically the contrary. This was the debate that was going on. And they thought he was clearly dangerous. And he was the cause of many people getting led away from Yahweh, not to Yahweh, and so they also viewed him as a dangerous. By the way, to accuse someone in this day of being a deceiver of the people had some very dangerous outcomes because if they could prove that someone was deceiving the people, it was a crime punishable by death. Death by stoning though, which is so ironic because in, during this trip to Jerusalem, they're gonna pick up stones twice to stone Jesus. One in John 8, one in John 10. So it's interesting. I think a lot of people agreed with this take that he was deceiving the people. Now, part of this group, again, may have been influenced by what they had heard regarding Jesus' teaching. We know that Jesus' teaching is continually misunderstood, not just in the first century, but even in our day. We saw it misunderstood by Nicodemus in John 3, Samaritan woman in John 4, the bread of life discourse in John 6. His teaching was constantly misunderstood. And so who knows what had been being said about him from people who had heard him, to, you know how that works, right? It's, it's like the, our concept today is like when you read something on Facebook and you believe it. Why would you do that? I mean, there's just so many, so much garbage put out there. Uh, it, it's just, it's just fascinating. And so they had heard or, or heard someone, heard someone who had heard someone about Jesus and, oh, he's terrible. He's deceiving people. And we often do that too. One of these, some of these people might have initially had hope regarding Jesus. They might have actually viewed him as a, as a potential uh, Messiah or fulfillment of Messiah, but he hadn't moved on their timetable. They're becoming disillusioned with him. You know, he's been identified two and a half years earlier and it's, and they're like, when's he going to take over Rome? Like when, 
When's he going to come out and conquer these Romans? As each year and each season and every time they walk on a the road, they're being taxed by the Romans and mistreated by the Romans. They're like, this Jesus guy, what's he waiting for? I think Judas might have even started, might have been a part of both of these. I think he started in group one. Oh, he's good. I'm going to follow him. He ends up, I believe, in group two where he's just like, he's not the man. I'm going to sell him out. I think Judas may have even switched in between those groups potentially. So either way, though, what we're going to see in verse 13 as we kind of close out this morning is both of these groups were afraid to speak too loud about him. They were keeping it under hush tones. Even the ones that potentially agreed with the religious leaders, they're just kind of keeping it down, probably in case they had been misunderstood. They didn't want to be misunderstood in what they're saying. And so this is what we read in verse 13. However, no one spoke openly of him for fear of the Jews. Again, to speak openly means to talk at random or to, or to speak with freedom. You know, they were, they were basically restricting how loud they were saying it, who they were saying it to kind of thing. They were very careful about what they were talking about. And this is true of both of the groups mentioned here. This is what's kind of fascinating because you'd think the people that agreed with the Jewish re- religious elite would just like really be speaking loud so they knew the leaders, uh, that they were with the leaders. They, you would think maybe they would think that way. But I think part of the reason they did it, and, and again, they're at the Feast of Tabernacles. This is a, a time to be worshiping the Lord. So I think maybe they, they even held back there so they wouldn't be critiqued for talking about Jesus or focused on Jesus. And so obviously the, the leaders just didn't even want his name mentioned. So anything that was mentioned out loud potentially uh, could have gotten them in trouble, at least in their view, looking at these leaders. And so Jesus, we might say, was taking the air out of the room, right? Everyone was talking about him. Everyone was focused on him. He was getting too much attention. The religious leaders already didn't want him to have attention. Now he's getting more attention because everyone knows they don't want him to have attention. So they're giving him more to, and it's just this, it's backfiring on them. They're getting really upset. They just want him to go away is kind of their idea. And so, again, this fear of the Jews, this gives us the reason, this word for. No one spoke openly of Jesus Christ. The reason was they were afraid. What were they afraid of? Well, they weren't afraid of physical death. They, they weren't afraid that they would be put to death or they would suffer harm physically. They were afraid of social death, I believe. And what do I mean by that? Well, we're going to learn later, again, in this same trip to Jerusalem in John nine twenty two, that anyone suspected, even suspected, of confessing that Jesus was the Christ could be put out of the synagogues. I mean, in America, we're like, well, if they put me out of this church, I'll just drive down, you know, five minutes down the street, I'll go somewhere else, right? And it's not as serious as being put out of the synagogue was in the first century. But let me show you those verses real quick. John 9, 22, his parents said these things because they feared the Jews. There's the fear again. Why? For the Jews had agreed already that if anyone confessed that he was Christ, he would be put out of the synagogue. That was true of the people. It was also true of the leaders. We see later in John 12 that there were leaders, rulers who had believed in Jesus, but because of the Pharisees, they did not confess him. Why? Lest they should be put out of the synagogue. And so this was a very uh, serious social consequence that would have been felt by the average Jew in this day. This was their community. It wasn't just where they went on Sunday. It's who they did life with throughout the week. It was how they did business. It was how they did everything together. It was designed to center and function around the synagogue. And so this social consequence really came in three levels. Immediately, they were out. They were subject to, to being uh, kicked out for 30 days. Their own family were not allowed to talk to them during this time. 
So very serious. If they didn't change their mind, they would just add 30 days. They would keep extending it out. They were excluded from all sacred meetings. So if they were had at odds that the synagogue got put out, but they were still looking to Passover, they weren't allowed to attend. So you can imagine what that would do to a Jew who desperately wanted to worship Yahweh. And then finally, if there was no change of heart, they would be totally excluded from the entire community. And what effect that would have is they probably couldn't even sell their land where they were. They just have to move. Just to leave it all behind. Almost as like they, they lost their house in a fire or an earthquake and didn't have insurance. It's like, okay, well, we better just go down the road and see what we can do. So it's a very serious consequence that they were fearful. This morning, all we've really done is, is kind of set the stage for Jesus's appearance at this feast. And next week, we're going to see that he begins teaching the people. He begins interacting with the crowd. And when he does, the temperature is going to rise. We're going to see that probably. We're going to see the temperature rise so much so that by the time he leaves Jerusalem again in a few chapters, I mentioned this earlier, they're going to have picked up stones twice to kill him. This is how much the temperature is going to rise in the next few chapters. We'll start up there again next week. Let's pray. Lord, I thank you for your word, and I thank you for the life of the Lord Jesus and who he is, what he accomplished for us. We're just so grateful for the work. We're so thankful for what he has done for each one of us. Lord, if there's anyone in the room this morning that's not 100% sure that they are going to heaven, may they understand the value of what you accomplished for them, that you died for their sins, past, present, and future. You paid that penalty in full, leaving them with nothing to pay if they'll simply trust in you and your payment for them. We pray for them this morning, Lord. We pray for those in this room who have trusted in you for salvation, that that each one of us would learn how to trust you and rely upon you more in our daily life as we go about living in this world. We want to live a life that's pleasing to you, not just pleasing to our neighbor, but actually pleasing to you. And we want this desperately. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.